Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Joseph Stewart. The American Midwest is often thought of as a uniformly white and shaped exclusively by Christian values. However, this view of the region as an unvarying landscape fails to consider a significant community at its very heart. Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest by Edward E. Curtis IV, uncovers the long history of Muslims in a part of the country where many readers would not expect to find them. Professor Curtis, a descendant of Syrian Midwesterners, vividly portrays the intrepid men and women who busted sod on the short grass prairies of the Dakotas, peddled needles and lace on the streets of Cedar Rapids, and worked in the railroad car factories of Michigan City. This intimate portrait follows the stories of individuals such as farmer Mary Juma, pacifist Qasem Ramadan, poet Aliyah Hassan, and bookmaker Kamal Osman from the early 1900s through World War I, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and World War II. Professor Edward Curtis, welcome to the New Books Network. Dr. Stewart, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, I sure appreciate your time in meeting with me here. The first question that I have is, because I know of your previous work on Islam in the African diaspora, why focus on a study of Islam in the American Midwest? Well, for two reasons. East one, from 1880 to World War I, the largest and most successful Muslim communities in the country were really located in the Midwest. They were, of course, in other places, but in no place else did they have such success in establishing Muslim organizations, community organizations, eventually building mosques. So it's it's extremely, the Midwest was the heart of Muslim America from 1880 to World War I. Second reason, the Midwest was the heart of America between during the Gilded Age and World War I. We forget that before the, the Rust Belt was rusted over, that the Midwest was the economic powerhouse of this country. The combination two things made that possible. One, industrialization along the Great Lake. But that those all those factory buildings, that was aided by the taking of Native American lands and the intensive agriculture revolutions in technology, in transportation, like the refrigerated railroad car, made it possible to produce all of the grains and then the cattle and the hogs and all of that, which became the kind of capital that fueled the industrial revolution of the Midwest during this time. This is an important period in the history of the United States, and it's important in terms of the history of Muslims in the United States. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that sometimes folks think in American history that the Midwest has always been, quote unquote, flyover states featuring Chicago. And that's certainly not the case, as you show throughout your book. But I was also curious why you chose to focus on Syrian immigrants as compared to other Muslim immigrants. As I mentioned in the beginning, you are the descendant of Syrian immigrants. Did that play into your decision? I certainly had an interest, a personal interest in this. And I explain in the introduction to the book how my grandmother connected me to these histories. But the academic reason for this is because in 1900, the majority of Muslims in this country were Syrian Lebanese. Now, this would be very different by the 1920s and 30s when you had large numbers of African-Americans converting or reverting or transitioning to Islam. But we, at this particular moment that I'm capturing in the country, yes, there are Bengali and Punjabi Muslims and some Afghani. There are Bosnian, Albanian Muslims as well. 
But by far, the largest number of Muslims in 1900 in this country are Syrian Lebanese. And so, again, it's this moment that I, in many ways that I'm capturing. And their legacy is very important and somewhat forgotten in terms of how they shape the contours of Islam in the United States. They became known as Ogdi, you know, in Anglicized. In Arabic, it's pronounced in different ways. Oftentimes, it's Aadi, Aadi. So there's Aadi, there's Aqdi, there's Agadi, but Ogdi in English. Well, thank you for sharing that, Professor Curtis. In your first chapter, you introduce us to Alex and Fatima Ogdi. I was struck by the way their family interacted with Muslims, both Shia and Sunni, but also with Syrian Christians in the Midwest. Did the social interactions between different religious groups surprise you when you first began your research? It did not. And the reason it did not is because my Arab grandmother, for giving a primary theorist of this book, previous books I've cited published authors, it was my grandmother, Cassie Moses Safaki from Cairo and Mounds, Illinois whose stories of the Arab Midwest between World War I and World War II when she was growing up, was those stories really shaped many of the fundamental assumptions of this book. I knew from her that these communities were linked, that people would travel by rail and then by car, by road, to see each other get married, to meet potential spouses, to, to go to funerals. I knew that they were linked by a common politics, and many of them by an anti-colonial politics and by pro-Palestinian politics. I mean, I grew up from the earliest knowing that from the stories. I knew that she had traveled to Heflez and, and Maharajans, that is, from parties and festivals in Terre Haute, she went to school in South Bend at St. Mary's, where she met my grandfather, who was at Notre Dame. She loved our Humsey cousins in Cedar Rapids. And I knew that part of our family was from Oklahoma and Southern Missouri. And so I grew up with all of those stories. And one of the things that was never part of those stories was in religious resentment. Later on, I would learn how my grandmother's Arab identity which had room in it, welcomed Sunni and Shia and Druze and Christian identities all as part of the Arab, as part of the Arab world, as part of Arab unity. I came to realize searching this book and by more study in Arab American studies, how much that reflected a certain moment in Arab American politics. One that was not shaped, frankly by the 1975 Lebanese Civil War and by the overwhelming, this sort of religious sectarianism, which so which the average person in the United States, I think it's fair to say, associates with, uh, with the Middle East. You know, the idea, oh, you know, that I grew up with outside of my granny's home, oh, they've been warring over there since biblical times and they'll just keep on fighting. Well, that's not the story I got in home. It was actually more that we were one people, we were linked by a common language, we were linked by great civilizational accomplishments, and that if we would be left alone by outside powers, that we would get along just fine. And that was an attitude that kept coming up in the oral histories that I read for this book in the first and second generation. They may have downplayed 
the religious tensions among them, but they did that in part because they so valued the sense of Arab American community they were creating here in the Midwest and in other places across the country. And their own theological orientation, I also discovered, was very different than the one that we would see increasingly in the second half of the 20th century. It was a far more universalist theological orientation. The, and, and I use that, scholars of religion will recognize that as being the idea of universal salvation. And it truly seemed that the Muslims who might say, but also my granny, who was brought up Christian, that they believed that what was important was the worship of God and that there were many ways to worship God. They said over and over again that ethics and basic belief in God, basic, were shared across religious. Well, that's really fascinating to me. And I was wondering if I could follow up with you on something with using your granny as an unpublished theorist. Because I love encountering new work that introduces new methodologies, but I'm also really struck by the idea that working with a new theorist, maybe one that hasn't been peer-reviewed in the same way, can be operating like a tightrope blocker without a net underneath. Did you have any hesitations, or how did you work out the best way to employ the way that your grandmother saw the world as a framework for understanding Syrian immigrants in the Midwest? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, in a way, I like the idea of theory in its Greek sense as an itinerary. So my grandmother's stories gave me questions to ask. I didn't shut off, you know, my 30 years of study of U.S. history, of Islamic studies, of race and ethnic studies. I mean, all of that informed the book as well, although you'll see that in the in notes rather than in front and center, because this book really tries to center the stories of the people and the places in the uh, heartland Muslim Syrian. I didn't look at my grandmother's stories as a tightrope or as a sort of as any kind of kind of ideological handcuffs that that somehow that somehow blunted my imagination. It was an invitation to uncover these stories. And of course, stories I ended up telling were deeply informed by other sorts of theories like race theory or what sometimes is called critical race theory. We just called it African-American history in graduate school in the 1990s. It wasn't, we didn't even use the term CRT really in, in the field of history at the time. And, you know, so it was certainly informed and also by Midwest history. There have been tremendous advances in understanding the history of the Midwest in the last couple decades. So I was being a combinationist, which I oftentimes am when I'm looking at the theory. And so we really, you know, one would have to go issue by issue in order to explain which set of theories were informing me. But I certainly wanted to keep my grandmother's itineraries at the at the front. Yeah, thank you for that. And would encourage readers to look at the end notes for Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest from NYU Press. Now you discussed that Syrian communities came together. You note that they often were able to come together despite perhaps theological differences. They saw themselves as a group that they interacted with, but they were also a minority within the majority population. And many pursued assimilation so that they could fit in better with their communities. What were some of the assimilation methods that Syrian immigrants undertook or the first or second generation of Syrian immigrants undertook 
during the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the Midwest? Well, first, Syrian Muslims and Christians both overwhelmingly wanted to be on the white side of the U.S. color line. You remember historian and sociologist W.B. E. Du Bois's saying that the 20th be the problem of the color line. And indeed, they came to America when the legal segregation of races in the country had been perfected and codified for as national policy by Plessy v. Ferguson in the 1890s. And so because they were not they were not considered white, oftentimes socially, when they arrived, they had to fight for their whiteness. And they developed varying strategies to do that. They insisted that their Semitic identity was a very important part of, of the civilizational achievements and of the quote-unquote Western tradition. And they also did exactly what the NAACP did, which was develop a legal strategy to fight for their whiteness as well. And in some cases, they were, they even before their whiteness was codified, they did have access to white privilege through the Homesteading Act. And the book, I detail the sort of the highs and the lows of because their racial identity was so unstable. Sometimes they were white, sometimes they weren't. But as far as the census, the state census of South Dakota and North Dakota went, they were classified as white people. And being white gave them access to these homesteads because as historians of the U.S. will remember, if you could not become a naturalized citizen, it, you were not entitled to a homestead. Well, at this time, remember that Asians, because of the Exclusion Acts, cannot be naturalized citizens of the United States. So it was very important for them not to be, quote unquote, Orientals, as they were often called, but in the eyes of the law, white. And I go into, and in the book, I go into how at one point the federal government actually intervenes in 1908 and 1909, trying to get local courts to stop naturalizing Syrians as white. But many Midwestern leaders come to their defense because by that point, these Syrian and what would become Lebanese, they're all Syrians at this point. These Ottoman Syrians are already a part of these communities to such an extent that they all are known and they're, you know. So that's one. Two, the economics, they're factory workers, they're peddlers, and eventually they're store owners. Those are all, especially the peddlers and the uh, store owners, are public-facing jobs, in which case, you know, their whole job is sales, and they establish themselves as part and parcel of the economy of the Midwest. So in that sense, they're assimilating economically, right? And that's what they came here to do was to, was to most of them wanted to make some money and go back home. And then after World War One is when they begin to have a by the well, let's say by the teens, they also assimilate American culture by establishing their own ethnic religious organizations or associations, which they get official secretary of state, they establish as nonprofits. So we have to remember that this would be different than what was going on back in Ottoman. They had a different system for civil society organizations. They had civil society, of course, but it's a different system. And so they're establishing that by the 1920s, these ethnic and religious associations are taking shape in physical form with the, with the beginning of the building of mosques and other associations. Now, 
it needs to be keep in mind. Now, you might say, well, how's that assimilation? And here's the book. This won't be a surprise to American religion scholars, but it might be a surprise to the average citizen who thinks that now if they're assimilating, how could they be assimilating if they are preserving and insisting on their Muslim identity? Well, in the Midwest in particular, but really across the United States, part of the way that Americans organized their society in the 1800s is to establish the religious congregation as a primary vehicle of their participation in society. Ways, I mean, if you think about the ways that the U.S. was organized, much of our philanthropy, the way whom you marry, how you do business, so much of that was centered at the religious congregation, which was a space that was about much more than just praying and singing. And so in many ways, these Muslims are becoming American by organizing themselves into a religious ethnic congregation, just like the Polish Roman Catholics, the Sephardi Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, the Scandinavian holiness churches, the Scandinavian Lutherans, you know, all of these different, the Irish Roman Catholics, the Italian Catholics, the African Methodist Episcopal churches, all of these, right, are ethnic religious congregations. And so it's a sort of irony that in order to become American, they develop Islam as a congregational religion that is somewhat different than the kind of congregational religion it is where they come from, where only the men go to prayer on Fridays and the mosque isn't really a big deal in their lives as much as other institutions. And here the mosque becomes a community center, which, you know, and, and so that's a different kind of function for the mosque. All of those are ways in which Syrian and eventually Lebanese Muslims assimilate, but they assimilate in a way that oftentimes also preserves parts of their identities. Yeah, that was really lovely. It makes me think about the ways that different religious groups, especially ethnic religious groups, are in some ways learning to do legal haiku in the United States, where there are strict forms and functions that they have to follow. But the creativity that they pursue in creating a space for themselves often reveals the beauty of their past, the, the resilience of a group as well. And one of the ways that I was struck in the book was thinking about how military service served Midwestern Muslims. Of course, they are employees of the United States and, and agents of U.S. empire, but they're also benefiting themselves as individuals and as communities. Could you tell us a little bit about how military service transformed these communities? Absolutely. You know, in one way, the book is is a very traditional kind of history in that it pays a lot of attention to war. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the field of history really began to go much more towards social history and, and away from political history, which, which oftentimes revolved around wars. But these wars were extremely important to the formation of Arab American Muslim identities. And so I do spend quite a lot of time. They represent historical forces over which many times the protagonists in my book have little control. In World War I, you really, as someone who is either a naturalized citizen of the United States or who is an enemy alien of the Ottoman Empire, one of the enemies of the United States in World War I, you cannot come out and dissent. And if you do, I mean, we're, we're literally talking about in the case of Germans, you know, being sent to Fort Leavenworth. 
I mean, so much suffering across the Midwest as Germans were essentially put into concentration camps. And there were many deaths among many of the religious pacifists among the Germans during World War I. So they knew the score. They knew the score. They knew that dissent wasn't possible. I and mean, one of the figures in my book says he served, but he's a pacifist. He was a farmer from Western North Dakota, which was the really the center of radical agrarian politics in, in the first half of the 1900s. You know, people might be familiar with the Grange movement and the farmers, you know, and so, you know, he was a pacifist. Others were proud to serve, they said, in the oral histories. And certainly these communities organized to contribute and were oftentimes very anxious to show their loyalty to the United States, not only because it was potentially dangerous to oppose the war, but also because it represented an opportunity. And this kind of speaks, Dr. Stewart, to the resilience, you know, that you were talking about just a moment, the creativity. Okay, so participation one can do, can serve other functions other than to serve U.S. empire. One, because the enemy of the United States in this war is the Ottoman Empire, it can actually serve to free the Arabic-speaking people of the Eastern Mediterranean from, from the Ottoman Empire. You know, so that's, so that's one. Two, if you serve in the U.S. military, you can get your U.S. citizenship. So you can solve the problem of your potential, you know, are you an enemy alien? Are you not? By being three, in many places, unlike a lot of the African-American soldiers, you can get a lot of social capital in local communities by serving in the U.S. military. And this is exactly what happens in Michigan City, where until World War I, in Michigan City, Indiana, which is right on Lake Michigan, Arab Americans are uh, discriminated against explicitly in public spaces. Arab Americans are discriminated against in public spaces, but for reasons I explained in the book, their service in World War I has the effect of integrating them into Michigan City society, white society. So that's another one. So we have all kinds of, you know, important, World War I is this turning point. And then finally, of course, you can't go home. I mean, it's too, I mean, people do still cross the Atlantic, but it's very dangerous because of German U-boats. It's very hard to get passage at times. And so at that point, the many in the first generation say, okay, I'm actually going to stay. I'm going to become a U.S. citizen, and I'm going to stay in the United States. And so that decision to stay then spurs all kinds of other institutional growth in Arab American Muslim civil society, primarily in the terms of the mosque, but in other institutions as well. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that oftentimes in histories of immigration and in histories of religious minorities as well, a lot of uh, casual observers sort of see this either or binary where people are either totally against the state or totally with the state. And in reality, most people are just trying to survive. Most people are trying to make the best of a, a difficult situation. And military service provided a way up. It provided a, a stepping stone into society. And I love that you point this out in other ways too, especially with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, where Syrian Muslims both support aspects of the New Deal but also disagree with Roosevelt's international politics. Could you tell us about their embrace of certain parts of New Deal politics while also rejecting others? Absolutely. And one of the sources for this are the are actually 
New Deal themselves, because the, some of the best contemporaneous oral history interviews of Syrian Muslims came from the North Dakota Federal Writers Program, where they went in and where the Federal Writers Program interviewed the disappearing ethnic groups. This was their their framing of it. You know, this also led, by the way, to the Georgia Writers Program working on Sapelo Island and, you know, all along the Gullah Geechee coast of Georgia. North Dakota, the people interviewed were Syrian Muslims. They oftentimes would refer to themselves as Syrian rather than Lebanese because when they immigrated, it was all part of Ottoman Syria. So they were, as these interviews took place, oftentimes as the country was approaching World War II. And, you know, it was clear Franklin Roosevelt really wanted the United States to be less isolationist and much more engaged in asserting its new power abroad. But the country was not with him in many ways. There was the the average citizen oftentimes was actually thought, you know, let people in Afro-Eurasia or the old world, as it was sometimes, take care of themselves and we'll take care of ourselves. And so, and in particular, the inch of war contracts and war profiteering was still uh, so um, powerful in the 1930s that many people thought and framed war as simply an opportunity for capitalists to make money. That was its primary function. So when you talk to farmers in North Dakota, whether they were Muslim or not, many of them expressed the view that we need to be opposed to the war. Now, they would later be framed as, in pejorative terms, as isolationists. And there may indeed have been the kind of parochial and even racist attitudes that we associate with isolationism. That was also part of a concerted effort to lump all of those who opposed U.S. involvement or two as dangerous, narrow-minded, and bad people. Because really what they're coming, many of these farmers out of the Western or Dakota places are coming from is a much more radical politics that doesn't see war as benefit, you know, uh, people. So whether they were wrong or right, what's so fascinating is to see Muslims who had served in World War I, who are veterans of World War I, look back and say, you know, we already tried to solve Europe's problems <laughs> that once. Why do we need to do it again? We've got our own problems. And by the way, you have to remember, this is the Great Depression. You know, many people are, you know, they're really, they're losing their farms. They're in debt. They deeply want the United States to focus on their problems. And so a lot of them are opposed. They say, you know, we're going to have to fight anyway. But at the, in 1937, 1938, many of them are not anxious to go fight or send their children to fight another war in Europe. Yeah, I think that this is something that you also bring alive with individuals making choices and communities making choices is some people are set to benefit and some people are not from national political choices. And there is so much more in your book, Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest from NYU Press. But I wanted to ask you two other questions. And the first is, could you tell us more about the documentary that you directed, Arab Indianapolis, A Hidden History? Because I thought that it was a really interesting pair to be able to put with the book because it brings not only the history of Arab Indianapolis, 
you're also speaking to living, breathing Arabs who are alive today and maintaining their culture. So how did the documentary come about? And did it change the way that you approached your book as you were working on the documentary? Those are great questions. So what happened was that the the kinds of research techniques that I used to write Muslims of the Heartland, I was frankly slow in getting with the digital research revolution. And this is really the first book in which I've used a majority of my sources have been digitized. So things like city directories, I mean, the ability to do keyword searches in massive amounts of digitized newspapers. I mean, there were some times when I had to, you know, because they weren't digitized, do what I was trained to do, which is go through page by page with the microfilm. But, you know, most of the newspapers, you know, birth and death, immigration, draft cards, all of these things being digitized, which allowed me, when paired with the oral histories that I was using, to capture the details of someone's life in 1900 or 1910 in a way that I had you know, never been able to do before. And because of that, I started to discover completely unknown aspects of Arab and Muslim history. Like, for example, the very strong presence of a civil society organization in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You know, this had not been in the Islam in America literature up to this point. And so those newly found research abilities from my part, not new for other people, but new for me, then inspired me to start looking local community, Indianapolis, for what I could find. So really, it was the book which led to the kind of research that inspired Community History Project. So I started to, to look at, you know, were there Arabs here in Indianapolis in 1900? And not only did I discover their presence, which wasn't com- I should have known, but I discovered that the heart of the community, the first Arabic-speaking neighborhood of Indianapolis, is located on the same ground where Lucas Oil Stadium, the home of the Indianapolis Colts, now stands. And no one, no one had mentioned this in any of the historical literature on Indiana or on Indianapolis. No one knew about it. No one in the community talked about it. And so this was, this is like one of those, I mean, you don't have these kinds of revelations very often in modern historical research anyway, but this was. And then, so I got together with other Arab Americans and I said, you know, should we do a community history project? And many people were enthusiastic. And so um, we have about eight or nine different projects associated with this community history project. One is is a book, is a kind of coffee table style book from Belt Publishing called Arab Indianapolis. And uh, the other is this documentary made for WFYI TV and PBS called Arab Indianapolis, A Hidden History. That was inspired by a lot of this research. But then what I did paired up with other Arab Americans and we would together sites where where Arab Americans had made contributions to history from you know Lucas Oil Stadium to the Capitol to the war memorials downtown. And we would talk about not just what had happened, but what it means to us today to be part of a place, truly belong to a place, have that place belong to you when we're told by millions of our fellow Americans that we're foreign, that our culture is different, 
that we don't belong here, that we should go back to our own countries. You know, and so that feeling of belonging has been very powerful. It's, it's been fun. It's been moving to be on screen with other Arab Americans thinking and talking. And in one case, we're cooking. We're even cooking and thinking about the place of cooking in uh, in our culture in, in the United States and in particular, Indianapolis. Well, thanks for that. And also, just if any professors are listening, this documentary, as well as the book, fits in with so many different sorts of for- courses not only survey courses of American religion or regional courses or Islam in America or religious minorities, but also religion and food, religion and cities, uh, religion and material culture. And I watched it from my local PBS station online in Salt Lake City and would just highly recommend that as well as the book to others. And then my final question is actually more of a big picture question, which was how was this book's research and writing different from your other books on Islam? You mentioned digital availability of sources. But I can see how I think that this is your seventh or eighth book, that maybe it took a little bit of a different approach than your previous work had. Could you reflect a little bit on what it was like to to write it a little bit further in your career? Yes. So it was very important to me to write it in as accessible a fashion as possible. It's hard to know how much one succeeds because in the end, I still published it with a university press which somewhat limits the bookshelf space and, you know, not somewhat, it limits the bookshelf space and the attention, the marketing that you would get by getting an agent, a book agent and publishing for with a, a for-profit press. But I really enjoy working with my editor at NYU Press and I knew exactly what I wanted to do here. So I try, you know, I don't think I use the word thesis or argument once. Now, there are theses and arguments, but there are several assertions in the book. But I don't use that because the people for whom I was trying to write this, some of them think that arguments are impolite. Why are you always arguing? Academics always arguing all the time. And even though we explain, no, we just mean we're trying to make a main point. It's still, it doesn't. And the other thing is, I didn't want this to become sort of meta reflection about how we study. This is not a meditation on epistemology or ontology. That is not, but it's a narrative about ontology, about who we are in America by telling the stories of the people whose stories are too often forgotten when we think of who an American, who a Midwesterner is. And so it was really important to me as much as I could to take the reader back to these places. I wanted to tell them what it smelled like, what it looked like, I really wanted them to be able to imagine themselves, you know, on the Big Sioux River in Sioux Falls or on the minus 30 degree weather in Western North Dakota in a tar paper shack, you know, in in January or February, you know, and still braiding Eid, one of the Muslim holidays. You know, so that those are the kinds of things that I wanted to do. And I kept thinking about a, you know, it's a it's it's a probably written for a generally educated audience, but you know, the kind of person who might read a magazine, a magazine reader, something like the Smithsonian Magazine, you know, the New York Times reader, but it's not written for my fellow academics. Because I have written a number of books, you know, that it was important for me to reach out to, to a different audience as much as possible. And I'm a little scared of what they're going to say, because I, I didn't really write this for my fellow academics. That may be reflected in the academic reviews of it. But this book is more popular 
than any book I've ever written. I have 22 speaking dates on the book tour. And I am, it's just deeply satisfying that it has meant so much to people across the Midwest who keep inviting me to talk about it. I know it has succeeded as I bring these stories to audiences across the Midwest. Professor Edward Curtis, thank you so much for speaking to us on Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest from NYU Press. And we look forward to what you publish next. Thank you, Dr. Stewart.